So on September 19, 1991, two tourists along the Austrian-Italian border found a 5,000-year-old mummy in the ice. The mummy has been extensively examined, measured, x-rayed, and dated. Uh, not dated like going to Carabas, but, you know, dated. The mummy was named Otzi after the location where he was found. He's approximately 5 foot 5, 110 pounds, about 45 years old. Analysis of his stomach contents revealed eight hours before his death, Otzi ate a meal of deer meat, grain, and fruit. Copper particles in his hair along with his axe, the axe is 99% pure copper, has led scientists to believe that he was involved in uh, copper smelting. This is what a reconstruction of what he may have looked like in life. By examining the proportions of his leg bones, it was determined that Otzi's lifestyle included long walks over hilly terrain. It suggested that he may have been a high-altitude shepherd. Defensive wounds on his hands, arms, and chest, as well as an arrowhead lodged in his left shoulder, indicate that Otzi may have died under hostile circumstances. Otzi had 57 carbon tattoos, including one on his right arm that read mother. No, not really. But he did have the tattoos. It's been suggested that there is a curse related to this mummy. The allegation centers around the deaths of several people connected to the discovery, recovery, and subsequent examination of Otzi. And to date, the deaths of seven people under mysterious circumstances have been attributed to this supposed curse. You know, it's just amazing what they can learn from a mummy. And of course, last Sunday, if you were with us, we, we started this little two-part sermon here on uh, the mummy, and it's based on John chapter 11, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. And a curse, you talk about a curse, it was really a curse that came upon all mankind. It's kind of illustrated by Lazarus' death, the curse of death. But last Sunday, we noted two things. Number one, the overarching lesson is What's illustrated by the resurrection of Lazarus was God's victory over death. God's victory over death. That's the big, big point. And so we talked last Sunday about the determination of God and his victory over death and also the limitation of God and his victory over death. So today, I just have three more things I want to say using Lazarus about God's victory over death. Number one is compassion. The compassion of God's victory over death. John chapter 11, verse 33, we continue. When Jesus saw her weeping, this would have been Mary, the sister of Lazarus who had passed away. He saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Compassion. So last week, we were talking about this big question that many people have. If God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and God is good, how can there be so much unjust suffering and death in this world? And a part of the answer to that is the answer of free will. Man has free will. And so we can, make, we can choose to obey God or to disobey God. And starting with Adam and Eve, people have rebelled against God. So those choices have real consequences, and that's how the curse came into the world. That's one of the primary reasons we're, we're still dealing with this. But if all we had was a God who gave us free will and then stood back and watched us make bad choices and just take our lumps, then we, we, would, we would still have a just God. We'd still have a righteous God. But 
not maybe a very compassionate God. Compassion is the word here. That word, if you break it down, compassion, the prefix means with, passion means suffering. It literally means to suffer with. And we know here, it's illustrated in this story of Lazarus, that Jesus wept. He, he felt the grief and the pain of these sisters and the other people that were there mourning. He, he entered into that pain. So, so there's a little five-year-old boy, and he had an elderly neighbor. And the elderly neighbor's wife passed away. And so the boy took over a sympathy card and a plate of his mom's homemade cookies. The elderly man answered the door. He received these things. But the little boy noticed that his tears. And so as little children are wont to do, he just marched right in there. And the man sat down and he sat right on his lap. And so 20 minutes or so later, he came back to his mom's house. And mom said, what did, what did you say? to our neighbor, and the little boy said, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. Have you ever been in that situation? You know, we, we, we struggle for just the right words when we're trying to comfort someone who's grieving. What do you say? I mean, it's probably always, nearly always appropriate to read a scripture and have a prayer, but where, where do you find the right words? And probably it's not so much important that we find just the right words as much as being present and by our presence communicating our love. We just go and help them cry. And God helps us cry. I mean, we know what this feels like. We know what it, Mary feels like, Martha, to stand beside that grave. We've all done that. We've stood beside the grave of a, of a grandparent or a parent, sibling, some, a spouse. Some have known the very acute pain of standing by the graveside of a child, but one author called the worst loss, greatest loss, or a grandchild. Uh, at our carry-in lunch, la uh, last time we had our carry-in lunch, I was sitting across the table from a woman, and she, we were talking, and she shared with me how she, years ago, had a child who died. I didn't know that. I said, how did you deal with that? How did you get over it? She said, I've never gotten over it. Well, of course. You never quite get over something like that. So we know that feeling, and God knows that feeling as well. He steps into our pain. There's nothing like this in all of religious literature. You don't get a God like this in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Islam. Really, we don't get quite this close to it, even in Old Testament Judaism, as a God who comes alongside of us and weeps and helps us cry. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Last week, when we were talking about free will and that, that whole struggle with suffering, I mentioned Eliezer Weissel, Eli Weissel, who wrote the book Night. He's a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. So he, he wrote of those experiences, very difficult read, and that Pretty well-known saying that he made. He said, on the day I saw a boy hanged in the concentration camp, that's the day my God was hanged as well. And he was talking about his struggle with faith. Of course, Eliezer Weissel is a Jew. He's not a Christian. We Christians know something that maybe he doesn't know or does not accept. And that is, really, our God was hanged 2,000 years ago on Calvary. He suffered for us. He, 
God suffers, but not because he has sinned or done anything wrong. He suffers because, as the song says, love hurts. And God is the superlative of love. He hurts for us. He grieves when we grieve, when our heart is broken. The Bible says God is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus was hung on that cross. He suffered in our place so that we could be saved. And yes, he's been hanging with every child who has suffered since that time and every parent and every spouse. This is the compassion of God. In the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.3 our God is the Father of compassion, suffering with, who comforts us in all of our troubles. So we see this illustrated, do we not, in this episode with Lazarus, the compassion of God's victory over death. All right, here's a second one, the audacity of God's victory, the, the audacity of God's victory over death. Verse 39 and 43, take away the stone, he said. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now when Jesus, he, there, Lazarus is buried in a cave tomb, like where Jesus was going to be buried. And Jesus, when Jesus said, take away the stone, everyone must have been stunned. They must have wondered Take away the stone? The Bible says that they objected. Of course they objected. Who says that? Who does that at a grave? I've been in the ministry 40 years, about the same as you, Scott. We have conducted scores, if not hundreds, of graveside services. And I can promise you, at no graveside service that I have conducted, have I ever concluded the service and then said, Tell you what, folks, let's all meet back here in four days and dig the old boy up. I've never said that. That would be wildly inappropriate. Some of you think it's inappropriate that I even joked about that. Right? But here Jesus says, remove the stone. People must be thinking, what in the world is he planning on doing? Why is he going to remove the stone? That's audacious. And then he takes audacity to another level when he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I promise you, nobody saw that coming. Even though Jesus has been talking, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, you're the resurrection and the life. But nobody expected him to say, Lazarus, come out. And he said it in a loud voice. That's why it's audacious. If it had been me, I would have whispered it. I would have tiptoed up to the entrance of the cave, Lazarus, come out. Just in case it didn't work. Because if it doesn't work, I can fake it. Say, hey, I was just saying my respects, my last goodbyes. Or maybe they thought Jesus was going to go in there and put some spices on the body like Mary you know, and the other women were going to do after Jesus had died. Maybe that was a thing back then. But he laid it all out there. If he failed at this point, his public ministry is over. This would have been an absolute disgrace. You could not come back from this. But he said it in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I got to wonder what people... We're thinking, in the gap between when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and when Lazarus finally came out. Because if, when you read the account, this is verse 43, Lazarus, come out, and then the very next sentence says, the dead man came out. So it makes it sound like it happened just right away, but I don't see how it could happen just right away. Lazarus is a mummy. He is wrapped up in strips of linen. I did the study on the, the words here. 
It's a mummy like we all think of a mummy. He probably would have had a shroud, a large sheet of linen that started on his feet, comes up over his head, down his back, and then that is bound to his body with these tight strips of linen. So he's a mummy. He's laying in that cave on a ledge or on the floor. He has to get up to a seated position, and then he's got to, he's got to make his way out of the tomb so his legs are bound together. You know a mummy. To get out to the entrance of the tomb, he's got to do the mummy walk or the mummy hop. Right? And his face is covered. He can't see anything. Maybe he's, he bounces on the walls a little bit. But he's not going to move fast. I think it's, it's going to be a minute or maybe two or three or four minute gap here. That's why. Speaking of Halloween, if you're ever chased by a monster, if you got to choose, you want to choose the mummy because they're so slow. They're easy to get away from. So I think there's a gap. Lazarus, come forth. And then you just wait. Everybody's waiting. What must they have been thinking? I can't believe he said that. They're probably thinking, poor Mary and Martha, look at what he's putting them through. Or maybe they're thinking, poor Jesus, he's finally gone over the edge. Whatever they were thinking, I know where they were looking, don't you? Every eye was fixed like a laser on the front of that tomb. Because while nobody expected probably expected anything to happen. If something did happen, nobody wanted to miss it. Everybody who was there that day, if Lazarus was going to come out of that tomb, they wanted to see it with their own two eyes. They wanted to say, I was there the day Lazarus came out of the tomb and I saw it. There's an old story of uh, back in Oklahoma. Someone was being tried for murder. Tried for murder. But it was one of these cases, it was overwhelming circumstantial evidence, but they did not have the body of the victim. So they're, they're having to prove the crime without the body. But they had a good case. And the defense lawyer realizes his client's probably going to be convicted. So he resorts to a kind of a trick. And at the end of the trial, he gets up and he addresses the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he says, I want you to look at the back door of the courtroom because in one minute, the presumed victim in this case is going to walk through that door. Hush falls over the courtroom. Everybody looks at the back door. A minute ticks off on the clock and nothing happens. So the lawyer stands back up. He says, all right, I admit that I lied. But he said, here's the thing. I was watching the jury. Every member of the jury was looking at the door as if you expected that it could actually happen. And that means you must have some degree of doubt as to whether this person has actually died. And if you have doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must acquit my client. So the jury goes back. They deliberate. Five minutes later, they come back out, give the verdict, guilty. And the lawyer said, I object. How could you do that? I saw you all were looking at the back door. And the jury foreman said, yeah, we all did look, but someone was watching your client, and he did not look at the back door. He's the, he's the only one who knew. Have you heard that one? That's pretty good. Everybody there that day was looking at 
the tomb because they thought something might happen. But there was one man who was looking at the tomb because he knew something would happen. Jesus was the only man there, the only sane man on the planet that day who had the audacity to challenge death. In everything he did in this account, how he carried himself and spoke and acted, he acted like the man who held the keys of death and the grave. The keys. Isn't that how he describes himself in the book of Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, he said. And I hold in my hands the keys of death and the grave. And he exercised that key that day. Audacious. This is the man we want in charge of our salvation. So what does the resurrection show us about God's victory over death? Compassion, audacity. Finally is the power of God's victory over death, his power. Verse 43, again. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The power of God's victory over death is resurrection. It's the resurrection. Now, it's illustrated here, this resurrection of Lazarus, foreshadows, it looks forward to the resurrection of Jesus, which is the foundation. That's the power, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the power of God's victory over death. That's the power of our eventual resurrection, everyone in this room. It's actually, in, in an ultimate sense, the resurrection of Jesus lays the foundation for the new creation. The new creation is built on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The new heavens, the new earth, all resurrection life, everything that God is doing to make this world new is built on the resurrection of Jesus. That's the power. Now, one detail that's interesting to me is how Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So he's still wrapped up in the grave clothes. I'm sure Lazarus wants those clothes off. They stink. Lazarus doesn't stink. His decomposing body... Been in there. That's why the that's why these strips and these cloth this cloth these grave clothes stink. They've been wrapped around decaying flesh for four days. You know what that smells like. It's going to linger on the clothing. Lazarus is in the best health of his life. He's just been regenerated by God. He doesn't stink, but these clothes stink. I'm sure Lazarus will get these clothes off of me. Guys, have you ever taken a truckload of garbage over here to the dump? You know, uh, I call it Mount Trashmore. And so you got to, you, you drive that truck up there, they direct you to go up, and you, you'd slip and slide and drive up that hill, that mountain of trash, and you get to the top where the bulldozers are, are moving everything all around, and then you step outside the, tr the truck, and it stinks. There's buzzards flying around, it smells like decay, and like you would expect it to smell, like death. So you got to get out of the truck, and you make you pick your way through the garbage to get around to the truck bed, you offload everything, and then you get back down and you climb into the cab, and that smell, I mean, it gets on your shoes and it gets on your clothes. Stephen and I, my son, have taken many loads out there, and every time we do, I'm, I, every time we do, I'm reminded of a disability that my son has, Stephen. My son, Stephen, has a disability, and I've 
forget about it until then. And I get in the cab, we get in the cab and say, whoo, man, it stinks, doesn't it? And he says, does it? Because he does not have a sense of smell. And it's not COVID. It, he hasn't had one for years. None of us know what happened, but somehow he lost his sense of smell. I say, that stinks. He says, does it? I said, yeah, it does. And not only that, but now you stink and your clothes stink. And you need to go home and take a shower and change clothes. I just like to help him out that way. And Lazarus needed to change his clothes and he needed some help to do that. Now, you know that in a spiritual sense, almost uh, probably we're all Christians or nearly all of us in here are Christians. So in a spiritual sense, we have been buried and resurrected. We've been buried and resurrected. Colossians 2.12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to a, a new life. And when that happens, when we're buried in baptism, it's Galatians 3.27, if I'm not mistaken. Is it 3.27? Yeah, so all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We, we put on the new clothes. But here's the thing. The old grave clothes try to, they try to get back on us. It's as if Lazarus woke up the next day and he came to breakfast dressed in the old grave clothes. And Martha says, get those stinking clothes off. What are you doing? Well, they try to get back on. And while we're clothed with Christ and when we're baptized... That old grave mindset tries to reassert itself, that, that it's, a, it's a way of thinking. Paul describes it like this later on in Colossians 3, 5. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, all these habits, these mindsets, they try to reimpose themselves on Christians. So taking off grave clothes and putting on Christ is something we do daily, in, day in, day out. Spiritual disciplines are the way we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in doing this for us. When you read your Bible this morning before church and prayed, you're taking off those old grave clothes, that mindset, putting on Christ, the new mindset. Ephesians 4.22 Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, corruption. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's written to Christians. It's not all done and over with. It's something we do all the time. We're doing it right now. We need each other's help in this. Just like my son needs my help because he can't smell. We can't smell. We have blind spots. I'm helping you right now. Take off the old dead clothes and put on the new ones. You're helping me. We help each other. It's like a giant changing room in here. And so we, we listen to the scriptures and the teaching and we sing to each other as well as to God. The prayers, the fellowship, the encouragement, the Lord's Supper, all of this, right? This is, what, this is part of what's happening. Taking off, putting on, taking off, putting on. I don't have this on the slide, but Colossians 3, 9. You have put off the old man, put on the new. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Lazarus was bound by those grave clothes, strips of linen, we are bound together by 
love. That's our clothing. Poor old Lazarus. He had to die again. We die once. He had to die twice. But for somehow I don't think the second time was as... It couldn't have been as hard for him because he knew what was coming. He knew there's life after death. Kind of takes the sting out. And we know our Lord has gone ahead of us. He's died and he's come back and he's told us, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live and never die again. Kind of takes the sting out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we are here this morning taking off those old dead clothes, that old dead mindset, putting on the new clothes in Christ, reminding ourselves, reaffirming to each other and reassuring one another that we believe in you. We have to go through that separation experience, but we're coming back into our new bodies, living on the new earth, our eternal life with you. We have confidence in you, our Lord, the resurrection and the death, the resurrection and the life. And just as you say, in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus became flesh. He suffered for us so that he could free all those who all their lives have been enslaved by the fear of death. We are slaves no more. In Jesus' name, amen.